Welcome to the first episode of the Believe and Follow podcast. The entire Word of God may be summed up with these three words, Believe and Follow. The method God has always chosen to deal with mankind is this. God makes promises and gives instructions. He expects us to believe His promises and follow His instructions. The goal of this podcast is to make this simple truth clear and dispel the false teachings that are so commonly accepted as true. I'm your host, James Rattazzi. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the living personification of the truth. Jesus promises forgiveness and eternal life to all who follow Him. You may agree or disagree with all or some of what you hear in this podcast. All are welcome to email in their suggestions or comments. If you have a suggestion for a guest on the podcast, or even if you would like to appear as a guest, email me at james at believeandfollow.org. To start things off, I asked various individuals the same three questions. Do you believe that God exists? I do believe that God exists. In fact, I know He exists. Question number two is, what does God expect from you? First, He expects that I should believe He exists and to obey the instructions He gives in His Word. You know that there's a variety, we can see, of religious practices in the world. Do you think God is pleased with that? I think to the the extent that having different practices prevents people from understanding what he really wants them wants from them and um, and who he really is, I think he is not pleased. Do you believe that God exists? I do. What does God expect from you? I believe that God expects from me what I am capable of. In a practical and spiritual sense, like both, um, I feel like as much as I can know myself, God is the person who knows me the best, so He's the one who's capable of truly discerning what I am capable of and what I'm accountable for. And so in terms of like spiritual things, I can find what He expects from people spiritually in the Bible, because I believe in the God of the Bible, and... I think that in in other aspects of life, he always expects me to do the best that I can, and he knows very accurately what my best is, so I need to make sure that that's what I'm always giving. There's a great deal of 
division in religious teaching. Does that please God? I don't think so. Jesus expressed wishes for us to have unity, the same as he has with God the Father. And so that's one of his desires for us. And I think that if we were united in our beliefs and our practices, and that we would be united in our beliefs and our practices if we're doing what God wants, um, because God doesn't like make rules for some people and not for other people, if we're all really truly trying to do what God wants, then eventually we would come to the same beliefs and the same actions. So I think even outside of the like worldview of Christianity, even into like other religions, if there is a God that exists, which I believe, and if that God does have expectations for us, which I also believe, I think he wants those expectations satisfied, those desires that he has for how we worship him or what we do and how we live satisfied. And I think that's across the board, regardless of what our personal religious beliefs are or what we think God wants from us. If there is a God and he does want anything from us, it's going to be the same for for everybody because people are equal. So if we're all trying to do what God wants, like he would want us to have a proper understanding of what he wants, so it's our job to study to try to figure out what that is. And the closer that we get to a proper understanding and the more that we yearn to be pleasing to him, it will bring us closer to doing things the same. And I think that is what God wants. Do you believe that God exists? Yes. What does God expect from you? I believe that God wants me to read the Bible and use it as a tool to figure out if I do believe in the God of the Bible. And if I do, then to accept Him as my Lord and Savior and then to obey His commands. There's a great deal of division in religious practices. Does this please God? I mean, that would have to be a no for sure because, you know, the God of the Bible says that he makes it obvious, even just by creation, that he is who he is. And all these other things, all these other religions, I believe, are attempts to follow self, to follow man. You know, different different men, different people that came up with these religions. But a, a yearning, a feeling that there is a God, you know, they feel that in themselves, I guess, but not, they haven't come to the, the decision that, or the realization that the God of the Bible is the true God and all other ones are just uh, really, you know, images of themselves and of what they want to happen. Do you believe that God exists? Yes. Okay. 
hope I got you. I'll do it again. Question number one, do you believe that God exists? Yes, I believe that God exists. Self-existent. What does God expect from you? Obedience. We see in the world a variety of religious teachings. Do you think this pleases God? In, in that sense, God, he, um, he knew that it was going to happen. And he, right. knew that, he knew that we was going to have differences. What pleases him is for us to uh, seek for truth. You know, uh, and the word of God is truth for us to come under the under truth. So, you know, whether it pleases God, God, God is you're going to give an account to God. Every man is going to give an account by himself to God. So, uh, my my thing is to be a student of the word myself. You know, so uh, and then you know let let everything else because um, the truth is the truth. No matter how you know you could, <laughs> God stands on his own. You know, he's not he's not concerned about. Um, you know the, the you know the confusion per se. He, you know it, it doesn't hurt him. It hurts us. Do you believe that God exists? Yes. What does God expect from you? Wow, that's that's a toughie. What would your answer be? It's hard because it doesn't exactly answer the question. Because it would be God doesn't expect anything from me. Oh, that, but that's, that's not the answer. full answer. He doesn't that doesn't mean I don't expect things of myself that are related to how I view what it means to say God exists. But I don't view God as an individual being with... Uh, who, who, uh, has con- who has expectations. Who has... Yeah, sure. Exactly. Okay. He's not a human. I don't, I don't think of... Well, of he's not human. Anthropomorphized. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in a, in a metaphoric way. But in terms of the whole lay of the universe, I would say that to fulfill who I am to be who I was meant to be yeah something along those lines there's um, much division in religious teaching does this please God if I was going with that idea of God as a being like a human I would say yes he does like the division does he like the more negative aspects that are the result of the division like violence upon human beings with the, to each other? I would say no. But the idea of positive discourse, which has difference in it, that people can debate and discuss, and because how can you grow? You, you're not born with all the answers and all the knowledge in your head, so you're going to be challenged by things. There's right. going to which be divisive right. discussions. And so at that level of division... I think it's not only would God be pleased by it, it would be necessary because not everyone's on the same page, right? Right. And people are doing incredibly violent things for the stupidest reasons. I would love to be divisive with them and talk them off that ledge of, <laughs> right? So, well, the so, person who wants to shoot you shoot me I would like to go, I have a contrary idea of how there to be division between you and So, again, it's unfair on one <laughs> level because I can see where the, the, where the questions may be leading, but on the other hand, divisive is a very general term. Right. Divisive also has negative connotations, so in the negative sense, I would do the answer you're probably wanting, which is no. I don't think it would please 
God in that sense, because there is a little bit of a tinge of negativity to the word divisive, well, division, as opposed to right, division, right, division. Right, 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 as no, opposed to having it can be a you know a, a fruitful Socratic contrary notions, right. people coming together to challenge each other and progress in thought right. of things. That kind of thing, of course, as well, you know, I like very much. Do you believe that God exists? The, yes. What does God expect from you? He expects um, more of some. He expects more of me than others because He's given me more resources and more abilities. So He's expecting more. When when God uh, Jesus gave the parable of um, when God gave someone God gave someone some coins, and three different coins. Yeah. He'll come back to me and mention said, "Okay, what did you do with everything I've given you?" So he's expecting me. He's expecting more of me than maybe someone else. There's a great deal of division in religious teaching. Do you think that pleases God? No, definitely not. Okay. Absolutely not. No, definitely does not please him. It hurts him if anything. Does God exist? Yes. What does God expect from you? To do our best and be kind. Do you think all the division in religious teaching pleases God? I don't think he cares. There were some stark differences and also some subtle variations to the responses. The widest variety of responses were to the third question. This was expected and gives me the opportunity to launch right into an extremely important and fundamental spiritual principle. Now, on the one hand, it's expected when asking any small sampling of people the same three questions that you're going to get different answers. Everybody's different. This is a basic quality of human life. Keeping this in mind, let's look at a specific quality of God often brought out in his word, and consider how it applies to us. I'm going to shorthand some of the points here so this doesn't become a five-hour podcast, but we will have the opportunity to examine these things more in depth in future podcasts. So take note of anything you think I've glossed over, and we will explore it in more detail later. The statement is made a number of times in the Old Testament, that God is one. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, what's exactly meant by this might not be clear in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, we get clarification. Now, the good thing about a podcast is you can pause it and check the Bible passages for yourself. I encourage you to do that. Have your Bible open, and if you're not familiar with the setting of a passage, take the time to read the surrounding verses and chapters so you can be sure that I'm using the verse correctly. And if you think not, let me know. I'm here to be corrected. In the Gospel of John, chapter 7, we are told that the Jews marveled at Jesus' teaching, noting that he had never studied. That's mentioned in verse 15. Jesus takes this opportunity to make an important point that he often repeated in various forms. In John chapter 7, beginning at verse 16, Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, 
but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus makes the point that it's his intention to only teach what the Father has told him. And that brings glory to the Father. Do you see how that brings glory? And the one who speaks on his own is seeking his own glory. So in other words, the one who comes and says, look how clever I am, look at what I've figured out, glorify me, the attention is on me. But if I come and say to you, look, all I'm doing is speaking what I've heard, is speaking what I've been told, then I'm giving glory to the one who told me those things. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus says, look, this teaching is not my own, but him who sent me. This is very important. Now, go over to the next chapter. In John chapter 8, Jesus is continuing the discussion with the Jews who are having a difficult time accepting him as the Messiah that they've been waiting for all these years. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So Jesus is just speaking exactly what the Father has told him and always doing the things that please him. Skip over to John chapter 16, verse 13. And here, this is much later in Jesus' ministry, he is preparing his disciples for his departure, and he promises to send them the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says about the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Do we see a pattern beginning to emerge here? Jesus says, my teaching is not my own, but him who sent me. He's going to send them the Holy Spirit when he leaves. They don't understand at the time that he's telling them this exactly how important this is, but they will. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is also not going to speak on his own authority. He's going to speak only what he hears. He's going to remind them of everything that Jesus told them. The Holy Spirit's going to guide them into all the truth by only speaking what he's heard from the Father also. Spirit, Jesus, Father are one because they're all teaching the same thing. If anybody could have improvised or extrapolated and said, I'm going to add something to God's teaching, okay? I'm going to add something to the teaching. If anybody could do that, it would be Jesus. So if Jesus did not add anything, why does any one of us think that we can? But this is what we see in the churches today. There's a lot of teaching in the churches that's based on human tradition. We're not just faithfully and accurately relaying what the Father has given us. Skip over to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. 
Sorry for all the skipping, but bear with me. This is important. Look at Matthew 28. Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead and soon will leave them to return to the Father. Look at verses 18 through 20. Many of you are familiar with this passage. This is often referred to as the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus expects the apostles to be teaching exactly what he taught. He tells the apostles to make disciples of all nations. Also, note the authority connection here. He only speaks what the Father has told him, and the Father has given him all authority. We're going to add more to the authority thing, but take note of that. Notice the authority connection here. So Jesus ascends to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit as he promised. Now skip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me show you this, okay? The apostles did what they were told. They followed the instructions. This is a passage that we often read in connection with the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 23, just the first part of the verse. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Paul is saying, what I'm giving to you here is what came from the Lord. He's following in that pattern. Jesus says, I'm only going to speak what the Lord has given me. The Holy Spirit's going to come and he's not going to speak on his own authority. He's only going to speak what he's heard from the Father. Jesus says, I'm only going to speak what the Father has given me. Therefore, his words have the Father's authority. They have unity. Father, Son, and Spirit now have unity. They're instructing the apostles to do the same thing. Therefore, the apostles' words have authority. And we see the apostle Paul pointing that out in 1 Corinthians 11:23, for I received from the Lord that what what I passed on to you, the way we might say it in today's English is what I'm giving you here is what I received from God. I'm not making this up on my own. Now look at this. Go over to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. At verse 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That's how Paul speaks with authority. The instruction of the apostles to us now is for us to do likewise. Let's make sure we underscore that. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. And now this is in the middle of a thought. Let me read verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. We'll come back to that idea of of God's varied grace in a few minutes. But whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Remember what Jesus said back there in John chapter 7. The one who speaks on his own authority, the one who adds his own stuff to the gospel, is seeking his own glory. But the one who says, look, I'm just going to do my very best to faithfully communicate and faithfully execute what God has delivered, that person is going to give glory to God. And that person is able to speak with authority. 
Jesus showed us what God is one means. When he came in the flesh, he said, I'm only going to teach what the Father has told me. I'm only going to do what pleases him. And we should do likewise. What makes anybody think that they could do differently? This is a fundamental quality of God. So now if Jesus did not take liberties with God's instruction, why do we think that we can? Why is there such a variety of teaching? In his letter to the church at Ephesus, the Apostle Paul discusses the gospel and the spiritual blessings in Christ. He prays that day, together with all the saints, would be able to comprehend the glorious thing that had been done for them. He closes that prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 with these words. Let's just look at Ephesians chapter 3 for the moment. We're really heading to Ephesians chapter 4, but let's just get some context now. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're praying to the Father through Christ Jesus. The hymn that we're talking about is bring him glory, bring God glory. And how are we going to bring God glory? Well, how did Jesus bring God glory? By doing exactly what the Father had told him. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 is giving us the theological setting here. All the spiritual blessings that are in Christ and, and exactly what has been accomplished for them in Christ. Then in Ephesians 4, the apostle begins to make practical application of all that had just been said. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3 gave me some trouble. Because I looked around and I saw what was going on in the churches, and I said, where is this unity? I don't see any unity of the Spirit in the churches. But what's he talking about? And this is often the problem that we have when we're coming to the Word of God, is where in the thinking of man, where in our human thinking, and we're reading what God is telling us, we're saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's right, it doesn't make any sense. We have to understand God's thinking. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. So... We need to understand God's way of thinking. It does not make sense if our focus is on mankind. So the unity of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul is talking about is what we have just been looking at. The unity of the Spirit is God. The Son has unity with Him because the Son is always going to teach what the Father has told him is always going to do what pleases the Father. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is only going to speak what he's heard, not speak on his own authority. That's the unity of the Spirit right there. God is one. God has unity. Important quality of God. We have to find our way into that oneness. Jesus gave us the key. 
by only doing what the Father said, by only following his instructions. We should do likewise. It says to keep the unity of the Spirit. In the ESV it says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're supposed to take care of the unity of the Spirit. So first we have to understand what it is in order to take care of it. We're not going to come by this naturally. We're not going to come by this by accident. We're only going to come by it if we decide to follow God's instructions. If we say, okay, I'm no longer going to walk according to my own authority, to my own ways, to my own think-sos, I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to follow his instructions. And this is how we maintain it. This is how we take care of it. So if we see something in our lives, if we see something in our local church that's not in agreement with God's instructions, if we see people going off to the right or to the left, if we see people adding to God's instruction, then we should work on it together. There's a practical example of this in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 in the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now let's stop here. There's nothing wrong with, there's nothing sinful about washing your hands. But look at Jesus' response to their question. I'm going to read verses 6 through 9. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. And just skip down to 13, because he gives them a specific example of another thing that they do. And then he says, Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. One of the translations says, Thus nullifying the word of God, thus making void, just making no effect the word of God. By your tradition. So it's not like we can have the Bible plus. It's not like we can add in these human traditions. So what were they doing wrong? They were giving their human traditions equal weight as if the traditions of the elders had authority. The only way it would have authority is if it is the word of God. And this is what Jesus, of course, takes issue with. They were failing to distinguish between what was from God and what was from man. At the end of Matthew chapter 7, what does it say about their reaction to Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. 
He was teaching his one out authority because he knew that what he was giving them was exactly from the Father. What the scribes were doing were mixing in a lot of human tradition. That was the state of their religion when Jesus came. There were various sects. We have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they all had their own take on the Word of God. But they also had their own additional traditions that they added in. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, you've got a whole bunch of human traditions that you add in, and this nullifies the Word of God. In the churches today, we have exactly the same thing. We encounter what Jesus encountered when he came to the nation of Israel. And what it tells everyone else, what it tells the casual observer of the churches, is that this is okay with God. Look, you've got all these people that are experts, and they have a variety of teaching. If you don't like what's going on in the church that you're attending, then you can go down the street and go to another church and see if the teaching there is more to your liking. Does this please God? We see here, no. Look at Jesus' reaction in Mark chapter 7. No, this does not please God. There's an episode in Matthew chapter 21. Sorry for all the skipping, but bear with me. This is important. In Matthew 21, beginning at verse 23, And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him. The him is Jesus, obviously. As he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Heaven is what? Where God's will is being done. So he's giving them the from God or from man question here. When John came to baptize, was it his own idea? Did John say, oh, I know what I want to do. Hey, I've got a good idea. I'm going to go start baptizing people. Or was he told to do it from God? And they discussed it amongst themselves. Now, these are the chief priests and the elders of the people. So they have some understanding of the way God works. Look at verse 25. And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? They knew that when God says something, it has authority. But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And, of course, he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But look at what's going on here. When they ask Jesus, what gives you the authority to tell us anything? He's reminding them of what he's been saying all along. The reason why I have authority is because I'm giving you what comes from God. This is a very important question, the from God or from man question. And that's what Jesus in Mark chapter 7 was so angry with them about, is they were failing to differentiate what's from God, what's from man, because people are going to add things, people are going to have divisions. Now look at the Apostle Paul making practical application of this. Let's look at our good friends at Corinth and all the troubles that they have. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The Apostle Paul is instructing them that they need to have unity. Then they be united in the same mind and the same judgment, in the same thinking and the same assessment of how to apply that to specific 
things that are going on in their church. You all need to be united. There were divisions in the church of Corinth, and the Apostle Paul cautions them against that sort of thing. And when I bring this up, the person who's read the Bible through a couple of times will remind me that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Now, here's what he says. This is an interesting verse. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. So, He's not giving them permission to have factions. He's not saying factions are okay, but there's going to be factions just because some people are going to be right and some people are going to be wrong. There's going to be a division because he says, what I'm telling you to do is to be united in the same mind, the same thinking on this, and the same judgment. And he says, but there's going to be divisions that those who are genuine may be recognized. Those who are proved in some translations may be recognized. So you can distinguish what is from God or from man. Before we leave this passage here, look at verse 20. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Why is it not the Lord's Supper? Because of their division. Because there are divisions among them. So they're coming together and they're having the unleavened bread and the fruit of their vine and they're doing whatever they do on every first day of the week, just like it happens in the churches today. But he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat because of your divisions. So how many of the churches today would Paul make that same assessment? It's not the Lord's Supper because you have division. He makes an even more pointed statement in Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. There were some that came and wanted to instruct that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised. Well, this instruction did not come from God, even though God did instruct the nation of Israel to be circumcised. He did not say that was part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this instruction, this idea comes from man. The Apostle Paul very clearly tells them that this is not what they should be doing. Look at what he says in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the Apostle Paul mentions that from God or from man dynamic. You see how these things are all connected. And you see how I could make this a five-hour podcast if I'm not careful. In a practical sense, it is extremely difficult to walk in the unity of the Spirit. To express the type of unity of Jesus the Father, and the Spirit. But we need to teach it and strive for it. This is very clear in the passages that we just looked at. So many in the church believe unity is impossible, and any effort to strive for unity is just going to cause strife. This is contrary to the teaching of the gospel. And those 
who fail to make that distinction are in danger of the condemnation Jesus expressed in Mark 7 and the Apostle Paul expresses in Galatians chapter 1. The point is this. What we need to do is we need to first understand what is from God and what's from man. We have to make sure that our practices in the church come from God. And if we're holding to something and we don't see it in the Word of God, if we don't see it in the Bible, then it's from man and we should let it go. I can go on and give many more illustrations from God's Word, but perhaps I should stop here and see what feedback I get, and hopefully I will be able to add to your comments and input to this discussion. But my aim is to make this a weekly podcast. So make your voices heard so this can be relevant to your spiritual interests and concerns. A special thanks to everyone who helped out with this podcast. Especially to Dwight, Scott, Anthony, Tanya, Jeremy, Julie, and Stephen for answering the three questions. Also, a special thanks to Tanya and Julie for lending their voices to our theme song. You may notice, if you listen to that, there is no bass part in there. I was going to record a bass part, but I didn't yet. So if anyone wants to lend their voice to our theme, let me know and we'll add your voice in. Till the next time, goodbye and God bless. The love of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine. Sweeter also than honey